Welcome to today's podcast from Coastline Calvary Chapel in Gulf Breeze, Florida. We hope this message encourages you and brings light into your life. So Romans chapter 9, if you have a Bible, open to that chapter, please. We're doing a verse-by-verse study. And Romans chapter 9 has a lot to do with God and his promises. You ever get promises given to you? I got one through the email this week from a guy by the name of Osaman Sulami. It's an interesting promise that uh, he says he's the Turkish Republic of North Cyprus bank auditor. And that if I would claim to be a kin of some of these accounts, that there's 11.7 million euros that have been left in these accounts. He would only take 40%. I would get 60%. And he'll keep all my, he'll keep all my information very confidential. That's what he promises to do. And he promised that. So I'm not sure if I believe his promise. I think salami is a bunch of baloney. So I'm probably not going to go there. Or there's all kinds of promises. It's kind of like in the new year when they, you see all the promises about weight loss. You ever see those where some guy's like massively ripped, you know, and he's standing there by a workout machine through the windows of beautiful beach and mountains and view you will never have our eye in the back of our window. And he's sitting there and he's, you know, like 15 minutes a day and you can look like this. Or, or, or maybe the warranties on cars or, or appliances or computers, you know, how they have these amazing lifetime warranties. I don't know whose lifetime they're talking about. Because you read the small print and as soon as the thing breaks, well, the warranty's out. We, we bought a new refrigerator recently because ours died. And I'm looking at, you know, the whole thing and what it's going to cost. And, and Lynn goes, well, let's get the extended warranty. Let's get the extended warranty. And I'm looking at the extended warranty. And I go, God, I don't know. By the time, you know, it gets to that, that warranty's over and it breaks down. And because my wife is so submissive, we got the extended warranty. That's what we did. <laughs> you guys know? <laughs> I just want to make her happy. That's all I want to do. <laughs> so, so Promises. That's what Romans chapter 9 is all about. And the Bible itself, the the book, our book, the Bible is filled with promises. God gives promises, as you know, and God keeps his promise. He keeps them. Depending on whatever translation you use, there's 31,001,703 verses in the Bible. 23,000 or more in the Old Testament, 8,000 or more in the New Testament. And of all those verses, there's 7,487 promises in the Bible to you, to me, to Israel, in God's word. In fact, in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, we read, God's not a man. His last name is not Salami that he should lie, nor a son of man, that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? And the answer is, yes, he will. God keeps his promises. And you and I should be confident, assured, and secure in the promises of God. Jesus says, you can take my word 
believe it and act on it, and it's like building your life upon a solid rock. Because his promises are true. His word is true. He promises to forgive. Aren't you grateful for that? That God promises. In fact, he says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins will be scarred, they shall be white as snow. What a great promise. He promises to save. He promises to never leave you or me or forsake us, to lead us and guide us, to empower us with his Holy Spirit. He gives us the promise of heaven. And that's only six out of 7,487 promises. How awesome is that? How cool is that that God gives us promises? And in Romans chapter 9, his promises are under scrutiny. They're being questioned. They're being challenged. And there's this interesting thing that's going on. Paul, who's writing this letter, is being challenged about God's promises to the Jews. And he's being challenged about his loyalty to the Jews. Because Paul, as you know, has become this apostle to the Gentiles. And they're saying, Paul's rejected us. He's saying, God's rejected us. His promises aren't for us anymore. And Paul's going, whoa, 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 just a minute. That's not true. That's not what's going on. Now, you know and I know when the early church was birthed on the day of Pentecost, there in Jerusalem, the headquarters of Judaism, that the church was primarily, almost completely Jewish. Is birthed in a Jewish heritage, birthed in a Jewish city, birthed with Jewish people. But by the time the book of Romans was written, well, it was more Gentile in the church than it was Jewish. Israel as a nation, especially Judaism as a religion, had pretty much rejected Jesus as Messiah. Their leaders had orchestrated for him to be crucified. And so here is the issue that's going on in Rome. I think it's great to know what the issues are. And he says, and this is it. Since the Jews have rejected their own Messiah, who also was Jewish, the question is kind of resounding through the church at this time. Has God rejected the Jews? Because they have rejected him. And so we're in this new section as we step out of chapter 8 into chapter 9 that deals with Israel. Chapter 9 deals with Israel's past. Chapter 10 deals with Israel's present. And chapter 11 deals with Israel's future. That's how it's kind of laid out. So God had chosen the Jewish people to bring forth a nation that would represent him. He gave them a land called the promised land or called Israel. And through them, he brought forth a Messiah. He gave them a nation. He gave them a land and he gave them a Messiah. And so Paul is saying to those Jews and to those Gentiles in Rome, his heart for the Jews and how God's promise still counts for them and for the Gentiles. Listen to verse 1. He says, I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ 
for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Basically, he's saying, I still love you, Jews. I'm one of you. And I would, I would wish myself to be accursed so that you might know the truth and the reality of the Messiah. That's his heart. That's his desire. Who are Israelites, he says, to whom pertain the adoption. And he begins to list certain specific things that, that have been given to the Jews. And it's quite an interesting list. He says, the, the adoption. Because Israel, in a unique different from all other nations, was brought into God's family like no other nation. In fact, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, it says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel, Israel is my son, my firstborn. The, the, the first that, that God embraced and, and, and raised up and gave all his promises to. Israel, a special people. He goes on in, in chapter 9, if you look at the list there, in, in verse 4, it says not only are they the ones who pertain the adoption, but also the glory. And glory is a word that has to do with God's, God's majesty and His presence. And so Israel, like no other nation, had God's presence. There in the tabernacle as they made their way to the promised land, there in the temple behind the veil, God manifested himself over and over again in his majesty and his glory to the Israelites like no other nation. Adoption, he says. Glory. The, the, the covenants. How God had a contract with the land and the, and the people and the Messiah that he specifically gave to Israel. The law, he goes on to say there in verse 4. The, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the law. His word, his Ten Commandments. Did you know that the whole Bible, the whole Bible, except for two books in it, are all written by Jews? The only two that are not is the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts because Luke wrote both of them He's the only Gentile that penned any words in the Bible. God gave the law through the Jews. He, he, he goes on to say, and he, he recounts these things, and then he says the service of God. Well, that, that was the Jews. They're the ones that oversaw the temple, the sacrifices, the instruments, the, the whole Levitical priesthood came up through the Jews. And so he's saying, wait, you know, God's not through with the Jew, and he, he's certainly given all kinds of benefits and promises to the Jews. And then the next thing he says is the context of this whole chapter, the promises there in chapter 9, verse 4. All the promises, 7,487 of them in the Bible. You're adopted, you have his glory, his covenants, his law, service that you've been given for him, and the promises. And the only reason, I think, if you study Israel or look at the news or watch current events, the only reason possible that the Jews are in the land today is because of the promises of God. There's no other way. You know, you know, Israel is about 33 times smaller than the state of Texas. 33 times smaller than the state of Texas. It's in the news every day. It's, it's always in controversy. There's always treaties and things going on. 
Nine million people today live in Israel. 6.7 million of them are Jewish. This is a phenomenal place. You, you can still go there. I was there in September. I've been, I've been over there nine or ten times. It, it, it's an amazing place. You go to Israel and it's like, you get there and here's what you say. Oh my gosh, I'm in Israel. And you go to Capernaum where Jesus did all of his miracles, where his headquarters were. You go to Jerusalem and you stand there at the, at the base of the Temple Mount or you're over at the Mount of Olives thinking, oh my gosh, this is where he ascended into heaven and this is where it says he's coming back. You make your way around Israel. It, it, it's not that big of a place. Maybe you don't know this about Israel, but it's only 263 miles long from north to south. 263 miles. And the width of Israel is only 71 miles wide. That's small. 33 times smaller than the state of Texas, one of our states. And it's amazing. Did you know that Israel has a $300 billion per year gross domestic production? $300 billion. They are the fourth leading exporter of citrus in the world. That's pretty amazing for a, for a little tiny nation that is, you know, 33 times smaller than Texas. Not only that, they're the third leading exporter of flowers in the whole world. And this all came from an old guy named Abraham, living in the Ur of Chaldees, that God said, look up in the sky, I'll make a great nation of you. He says, I'm too old. My wife is beyond childbearing years. That's okay. And God took Abraham and his wife, took them to a land and has done amazing, miraculous, majestic things. He is not finished with Israel. Although there's a controversy in this time and in this chapter that perhaps he is and Paul's turned his back. And Paul's saying, no, I love you guys. I, I would be accursed myself that you might come to know Christ. And God has done great things in you and, and there's still a remnant. But, he says, verse 5, of whom also are the fathers, from whom according to the flesh, Christ came. The, the fathers. I mean, we, we know that the, the fathers are, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes. He says, however, Christ came, who is over all, eternally blessed God. This, this is an amazing verse, verse 5. You should circle it and put a star by it because it describes who Jesus is as one who came according to the flesh, but who is also God himself. Jewish background, born of a woman, but God himself. So God brings salvation to the Jews by a Jewish Messiah. And once again, there's no place like Israel. I, I encourage you to come out on the 26th to hear Pastor Ray Bentley as he's spent a, his life really investing in Israel in so many ways. And he's going to be sharing a lot of interesting things that are going on in Israel right now. He's over there three or four times a year. He's involved in a lot of the cities and mayors. And uh, he's going to share some amazing things about what's going on in Israel right now. And Tom Doyle, who's coming the following week. I met Tom in, in Israel. In fact, I ran into him in this last trip. His, his bus was there at a site that we went to, Caesarea Philippi, where uh, Peter makes that statement, uh, you know, you are the Christ, and we believe. 
And, and I, I saw Tom's bust. Oh, I remember Tom. I, I, I met him at another time in Israel. And Tom is a missionary uh, to Muslims. He just got back from Saudi Arabia last week. I talked to him on the phone this week. And he'll be here sharing about what God is doing in the Muslim world. And it's phenomenal. And one of the things that Tom does, I, I've seen him do this online. I've never heard him speak in person. Uh, his wife is also a very gifted evangelist to Muslim women. And I don't know if he'll do this when he comes here, but sometimes Tom will be speaking and his wife will come out from the back dressed in a burqa. And they will begin to dialogue as if she is a Muslim woman and how you or I or anyone might introduce Christ to someone of the Muslim faith. So it's, it's, it's going to be an interesting uh, series. And Brian, who's coming as the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, he took Pastor Chuck Smith's place, and he's going to be talking about the Bible in the end time. So th there's my commercial for the Wednesday night series. I, I hope you will invest in it. I think it's going to be rich. I think it's going to be amazing. But it all centers around Israel, and it's in the center of attention right now. No place like it. God has a future plan for Israel. Someone has once said, how odd of God to choose the Jew. And then someone responded, but not as odd as those who choose the Jewish God and then turn around and spurn the Jew. So true. So God chooses Israel. His promises are still available. But it's not about race. It's not about biology and Paul begins to make that clear in verse 6 it's not that the word of God has taken no effect that the promises aren't still in force for they're not all Israel he says who are Israel they're not all followers just because they're Jews nor are they all children because they're the seed of Abraham but in Isaac your seed shall be called and he says that is, those who are the children of flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. And what he's saying there, just because you're a Jew doesn't make you God's child. But it's those who believe the promise of the one he would send. It's, 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 it's those who are children of the promise are not his because they're born biologically of a Jew, not because you're raised but because you trust the promise is what he says. And then he goes on in verse 9. For this is the word of promise, that this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children are not yet being born. This is, he says this is prophesied before they were born. Nor having done any good or evil, they hadn't done anything, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. Wow. We'll, we'll look at that. We'll try to explain this. Paul says, God's promises to Israel are still there. They've not failed. Some Jews did believe, and they're a remnant. And God's not finished with the Jew. He says he still has his covenant with Israel. But salvation is not about just being a Jew, having biologically descended from the Jews. But it's about those who believed in the promised Messiah. 
And God has this mysterious sovereignty. And you and I, listen, have a free choice. Before, before these are born, before Isaac, before Esau, before these children were born, the firstborn did not receive the promise like he should have normally. But God said, I chose the secondborn. I chose Isaac, even though Esau was born first. Ishmael, I mean. The promise goes to Isaac. He chooses Jacob instead of Esau. He was the one born first. And God does not base it on tradition. He doesn't base it on race. He doesn't base it on biology. He bases it on those who receive the promise, the promise of the Messiah. And this verse 13 can be problematic for some people. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. You mean God hated Esau? This is a, this is a quote from Malachi a thousand years after the time of Jacob and Esau. And I, and I want you to, to, to listen to this because a lot of people will quote this. You say, look, God hates people. What is being said here by Malachi is the descendants of Esau were the Edomites who hated God, who hated the Israels, who were enemies of them. And Malachi is speaking not of Esau himself, but of his descendants and how God had to come against them. These passages are some of the, the difficult ones in the Bible to embrace and figure out. It's all about how God determines who receives the promise, and yet we still get to choose. And this is something that trips up a lot of people in their faith. You know, if God, if God determines who's going to be, then why even worry about it? He chose us. God is sovereign. But he says also, you must choose him. And this is what Paul is saying here. The Bible says both are true. He is sovereign. He chooses. But we almost, we must also make a choice. It's kind of like this. My wife and I, a couple weeks ago, got on a plane and we flew from here to Dallas and from Dallas to Fresno. We were going to watch our daughter and her husband's two children for seven days while she went for the first time since she's had children with her husband on a trip and left the two-year-old and the one-year-old in our very shaky hands. Now, we got there. And we had no idea what we were in for. I don't know if you've ever taken care of a one-year-old and a two-year-old for seven days by yourself. My wife and I. Both are in diapers. Neither of them can really talk. And they both have to be in strollers and chairs in the car and, you know, car seats and that whole deal. And one wakes up at four in the morning. One wakes up at seven. One wakes the other one up there across the hall. And we're up all night. They're throwing up on our socks, you know, stuff like that. And, and we're thinking, what in the world are we doing here? It was, and it was even Groundhog Day while we were there. It was actually Groundhog Day over and over again. <laughs> but, but here's the deal. We got on an airplane. The airplane had a predetermined destination. It was headed to Fresno. It, it, it had a certain um, um, uh, flight pattern given by the FAA, which it would not deviate from. It had a time, it had a date when it would take off, and it was going there. It was predetermined, but we got to choose. Well, do we, do we buy a ticket? Do we get on the plane after we bought the ticket? We, we, can, we can choose a seat. We can choose what, what kind of ticket we want to get. 
And, and when the flight takes off and reaches a certain altitude, the, the, the seatbelt light goes off and we can get up. We can walk around and go to the restroom if we want to or need to. We can, we can eat a meal. We can, we can work on a computer. I could, I could uh, read a book. I, I, I could uh, do all kinds of There's a lot of freedom within the fact that even though everything was predetermined and the destination was already planned, freedom and sovereignty at the same time. I didn't have to get on the plane. Sometimes I wonder if I should have gotten on the plane, but I didn't have to. It was my choice. I bought the ticket. God chooses based on sovereignty the destination and where he's going, but, but you and I at the same time must choose. You say, well, how, how come God can choose and, and, and do I really have a choice? Yes, you do. It doesn't seem fair, but that's what Paul says right here in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness or, or God's unfair? He says, well, certainly not. It's not unfair. In fact, in the Greek, if you read that verse, I'm going to read it to you again. It says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness or is, God, is, it, is there fairness with God? Certainly not. And the Greek, it reads this way. Is God fair? Isn't he unfair? And the Greek says, no way, Jose. No, it doesn't really say that, but that's kind of what it says. It explains how God's sovereignty has to do. Well, well listen to it. Listen to what God's sovereignty has to do with. For he says to Moses, verse 15, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. God says, my sovereignty is not based on my wrath. It's based on my compassion. It's based on my mercy. So then it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, not of someone who, who, who wants it or someone who does work salvation, but God who shows mercy. And then he gives an example, for the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, verse 18, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. And he uses Pharaoh as an illustration because here's the deal with Pharaoh. You know the story. God sends Moses to deliver his people out of Egypt. And Pharaoh says, no, I will not let him go. God says, okay, well, I'm going to do a miracle. And I'm going to show you how powerful I am. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to let him go. So he does a, does a miracle. And Pharaoh goes, not going to do it. God does another one. God does 10 of them. I mean, if I'd have been God, after the fifth one, I'd say, Pharaoh, you're out of here. God does it ten times. Ten times he gives an opportunity for him, and that's how merciful he is. Ten times he does these spectacular, amazing miracles, and Pharaoh hardens his heart. You say, well, wait a minute, John. It says here in verse 18, he wills and he hardens, speaking of God. Well, it's a different word for Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened his heart. The word that is used when God hardens heart is to firm or confirm the decision that Pharaoh made. So it's kind of like this. If Pharaoh would have said after the second or first or third or fourth or fifth or sixth or seventh or eighth or ninth miracle, okay, I'm, I've softened my heart, you guys go. God would have confirmed that. He would have softened his heart, but instead he confirmed the hardness of his heart. Okay, if that's what you want, I'll 
let you harden your heart. I'll confirm it. It's kind of like this. You push God away. You say, God, I, I want nothing to do with you. And God will say, okay, I won't force you. I won't make you believe in me. I won't make you surrender to me. God won't save you if you don't want to be saved. That's what the Bible teaches. You have a choice. Well, it's not fair. Yeah, it is. He's extremely merciful. It's a gift. He offers it to you. It's certainly not deserved. It's not earned. It's a gift. Look what it says, verse 23. Well, let's, let's start in verse 19, where we left off. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it? Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor, another for dishonor? What if God wanted to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? It doesn't say here that God prepared them for destruction. Man chose in the garden. He had a free choice. Eat of everything you want, but there's one you're not. He chose. And man prepared himself for destruction because God told him, in the day you eat of it, you'll die. And that he might make known, verse 23, the riches of his glory, vessels of mercy which he's prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. And he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who is not my beloved, speaking of us Gentiles, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You're not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. And so God says, look, my sovereignty is not about wrath, it's about mercy. And God's plan, listen, God's plan is all inclusive. Every tribe, every tongue, every race, every nation. God loves everyone. And he says, whosoever will may come to me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll choose to open the door, I'll come in. But you don't have to open it. I won't force the door open. He's not, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to Christ. God's plan includes you. Well, what if he didn't choose me? Well, listen, if you choose him, he's chosen you. That's the way it works. Disciples chose to follow Jesus. Remember the story when Jesus was talking about the bread of life, if anyone eat my body and drink my blood. And it said that day, many said, well, this is a hard saying. And many chose not to follow him anymore. And Jesus looked at his disciples and said, do you wish to go away also? And I think it was Peter who said, where would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so they chose. But later on, Jesus said to them something very interesting. He said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Wait a minute. Who chose who? He chose them and they chose him. But who chose first? God chooses, I believe, everyone. But you must choose him too. That's how it works. Salvation is like this. If you're drowning in the water and I throw you a rope, a rope's no good at all unless you grab hold of it. If you grab hold of it, I can bring you to the shore. The Lord doesn't save you unless you choose to grab a hold of the salvation he's offered you. 
God throws you the rope of salvation. If you choose to grab and hold on to it, he pulls you to safety. That's what Paul's saying. And his promises are real. His promises are true. And it's not based on the fact that you can earn it or deserve it or my uncle Tim was a priest or I got confirmed when I was a child or I was baptized as a baby. It has nothing to do with that. It has you believing in the promised Messiah that he sent and he sent it through the Jews. Embracing salvation through Christ. You, you can even be among God's people. Verse, verse 6 here says, But it's not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are, all, who are Israel. In other words, just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you're in. Just because you're a Jew doesn't make you part of the promise. And just because you come to church doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you read the Bible doesn't mean you're saved. Just because you do a lot of things that people in church do doesn't mean anything. Have you received the Messiah into your life? Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? You can be among God's people, but not be God's people. That's what he says. That's what Paul says here. So, so how do you know? I go to church. I, I pray. I read the Bible. It's not about physical things. It's about a spiritual rebirth that comes into your life. God's plan includes you. But here's the question. Does your plan include him? That's what Paul says. You must choose. What matters is you say yes or no. You for him or against him, the scripture says. Choose this day whom you'll serve. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Communion today when we take it. This is a, a very special time for a Christian because in many ways you're coming and you're saying publicly, I believed in the promise, in the, in the broken body and the shed blood. I, I believe that this is why I came. I, I remember that today. I celebrate that today. I embrace it today. And not, not my church attendance, not my, you know, uh, any work I could possibly do, but this becomes the center of my faith, his sacrifice for me and his resurrection from the dead. And that's why we celebrate it. His promises are true. He said, whosoever will may come. He said that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. I love the story of the woman at the well when Jesus says, hey, uh, go call your husband. And she goes, uh, I don't have a husband. Oh, you're right, you don't, do you? You've had five. And the guy that you're living with right now is not your husband. She goes, I, I perceive you're a prophet because you know everything about me. And he does know everything about you. And even though she had this terrible background and all these failures in her life, Jesus says, here's what I can do for you. I can give you water, not like what you come to this well for, but that will spring up within you as living water and it's everlasting. It'll, it'll be good for you today. It'll be good for you in death. And it'll be good for you for all eternity. And she, she, she just, her mind goes crazy. She begins to think about, well, well I got to get this. I got to have it. Where, where, how do I do? Do I worship here? Do I worship on your mouth? He said, no, no, no. It's not about where you do or what you do. It's about who you can become. A true worshiper 
of the living God in spirit and in truth. And this is what he calls us to, to know him, not just to know about him. And so he asks you, he asks me, are you part of God's family? Not based on something you have been born into, some work you try to do, some way to make yourself approved by God, but through the promise of his son, Jesus Christ. And he tells the Jews, I don't care how pristine your heritage is, God's promises are about the promise, his son, Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join us again as we dive into the scripture, going verse by verse here at Coastline Calvary Chapel.